thought there must have been a mistake on the roster. You've seen me too much up here lately. <laughs> so I have to say, I am totally unprepared. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due, in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that's God's precious word. Thanks, Joel. I really appreciate being able to share on this uh, passage this morning. It's a tremendous passage. I've uh, headed it Seven Habits of uh, Godly Living, Christian Living. And as you read through the passage, you'll no doubt, if you're a churchgoer, think, oh, I've heard some of this stuff before. Uh, you'll see that Peter is picking up an apostolic tradition, obviously teaching that you see also in the writings of James, also you see in the writings of Paul, also uh, consistent with the teaching of Jesus, of course. And it's as if there's a school of thought that's existing within the early church leaders and they know they need to plant leaders, there needs to be church leaders. The church is growing. No doubt as Joel has explained, Peter's in a context where there's possible persecution and, and, and there's threats to the existence of the believers and their fellowship. And the apostles have this bed of teaching and these common themes you find in Paul, humility, in James and in Peter. And of course you'll see similarities between say Acts 20, 28 and what you read in 1 Peter 5 about leadership. We're told leadership is someone who is an elder, not talking about age as such, 
but talking about an elder in the sense of seeing as someone who would lead and have the capability of leading a congregation. We also see in this particular passage that that elder, that leader that we set aside, is also an overseer. So some denominations say, well, there's two. You're an elder and you're an overseer. There's two different people. We tend to see them as one and the same. The elder is also an overseer. The elder is one who cares and looks after the flock, as we'll see in a moment, but he's also an overseer or a bishop, one who has not only a care level at grassroots, but has a macro picture of the church and their congregation and can also oversee the whole congregation as well as caring for individuals within that congregation. And that's what we're addressing here today. What's it mean to be an elder, an overseer? What's this tradition that the apostles had that they're handing down to us, that Peter's put together in this list for us? But if it means something for an elder, it means something for everyone, doesn't it? Because these characteristics we would want to see in all of our lives throughout the church, but particularly personified in the light of those who are leading us and leading our congregations. And woe betide those who do not seek to live the life that is being set out here. One of the joys about being a principal of Moreland College is they always keep you young. Now, you might find that hard to believe looking at me. Some of you have known me for many years. Most of you are saying to me today, well, my dear, Ross, you've lost a lot of weight, but no one said to me, Ross, you're looking younger. <laughs> but let me tell you, they do keep you young at Moreland College because you're dealing with millennials. And millennials always keep you young. They're, they're a fun group. And if you go to Facebook, you can see all sorts of categories and fun made at millennials. But as someone who comes from a different particular era, someone who's seen as a baby boomer or what, let me say you can learn a lot from millennials. And what we learn today is that whilst doctrine is important, and no one's dismissing that, whilst what we believe is important, for a millennial, if the character is not there, if the values are not there, if the ethics is not there, if the morality is not there, they don't care what you say. Does that make sense? They are absolutely committed to the criteria of what kind of life does this look like and who is the person in front of me who is teaching and speaking. And isn't that a wonderful way to finish this particular series? That we can hear all that we can about Jesus and what he's done for us, his holiness, but the call is, as we conclude, who are we? Who are we as people? Who are we as people? Mark McCrindle, who uh, does all the research you see today for McCrindle Research, and, and you see him on Sunrise, you see him all over the place, he's a new Hugh Mackay. I'm always glad to say he's a Morling graduate. He did his Masters with us. I heard him the other day on, uh, on radio talking about some other factors that are happening with respect to real estate. He does all sorts of secular stuff but he's also a Christian and interacts with uh, 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 what's happening in our society. And uh, if you can see this, it might be a bit small for you, but if you can see it, what Mark McCrindle has pointed out, looking at the census and their focus groups, that if you put all Protestants together in Australia, all Protestants, 
you know, uh, Hillsong, uh, Baptist, Presbyterian, Uniting Church, every brand, liberal, conservative, fundamentalist, whatever you want to call them. You put all Protestants together and you have 18% of our population. Catholics are about 20% of our population. But if you look at the people who claim to be spiritual but not religious, you have 19% of our population. There are more people who are spiritual but not religious in Australia than all Protestants put together. And if you add the nuns, they're not people who are nuns in NUN, they are people who have no commitment to any particular belief. Most of them are spiritual but not religious, but they're not prepared to tick any particular religious tradition when they do the census. That's 30%. So over 50% of Australians are not Protestant, are not Catholic, they're spiritual but not religious, they're open to Christian or spiritual things but they're not going to find it normally in the context of the church and for many they have great obstacles with respect to the church because of sexual abuse and other issues that have happened. They don't see us as necessarily having the character Mark McCrindle goes on and says, if in this area you had a new subdivision and, and you're going to do a new church plant and you polled everybody and asked, oh my gosh, what would you like here? Uh, would you like a new shopping centre? No, Erina doesn't need a new shopping centre. Would you like a place where the dog can run unleashed? Yeah, that would look good. Would you like a new church? Only 5% of Australians vote for a new church on that vacant block of land that the developer has to put aside for the shopping centre, uh, for, the, for, the, for the new uh, development. The majority want a shopping centre. They even want a park where the dog runs unleashed two or three times more than they want a local church. By the way, they're not against the church. I've got concerns, as I've said. Most of them said doing good, even though they understand the sexual abuse makes it so difficult, but it's just not relevant to them. His other research, which he did for World Vision, if you ask the person in the street, um, what do you see the church assisting you in areas of life? If you ask people to go to church, if I ask people here today, does the church assist you in spiritual things? 99% of you would say yes, the church assists in spiritual things. If you go out there and ask your neighbour, does the church assist you in spiritual things or finding spiritual pathways? Only 27% says yes. One in four. Only one in four see this is a place to come to even find spiritual guidance. One in four. So my students at Morling, and I think all of us understand, these are challenging hours. These are challenging times. And not for a community in a world that is any less spiritual, it's simply less Christian. And how do we reach that age? How do we be Aaron a Baptist in that age? What sort of leadership do we need in that age? Oh, we need people who know the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we need people who can share the gospel with, with truth and relevance. But we need people of character. We need leaders of character, like we've need, not needed them in any other era. Because our next door neighbours... Those who are raising young families in this area are looking for people that live the life. 
And it's not just us, is it? It's politics. I mean, wherever you are. I mean, they're sick and tired of the, uh, of the, of the so-called political debate and whatever. They just want to find people they can trust. Someone they think they can invest their lives with. Someone who can represent our values. So what does Paul say to us? What does Peter say to us? It could have been Paul. What does Peter say to us? If we're going to be a people of value, if we're going to be people of character, then we've got to make sure that we live the life of care and as shepherds, but we've got to make sure that our leaders, our leaders are shepherds. Our leaders are people who are servants. I find this very interesting that uh, Peter addresses this first off. And by the way, he says, this is a crown. If your leader... If we are people who are shepherds and servants, then we will receive a crown, a crown of glory, of God's glory that will last forever. When we are in God's presence finally, we will receive a crown, a crown showing that we have lived life his way, we have lived lives of his glory. By the way, there are about five crowns in the New Testament five kind of gold medals that you can receive throughout your Christian life, and this is one of them, the crown of glory. What is a shepherd? A shepherd is someone who willingly serves Joel, not must. I mean, yeah, there's a sense of duty, a sense of call, but willingly, willingly, oh, gee whiz, I guess I better give this mob another you know, another six months, or I better guess turn up today, I, I don't really know. No matter what, we are people who willingly serve God. We do it because we know he has willingly served us. We don't do it begrudgingly, we do it willingly. And not only that, we don't want leaders that are doing it after money or greed. We want people doing it because they care. And we don't want people who lord over people. We want people who serve people. And that's what our community wants. Uh, Beverly and I were involved in the church and uh, it had grown dramatically and then sadly it had a split and it went from about 700 to 200 and, um, and, and then they called a new pastor. And this new pastor was a, was a great guy and he could preach well and he had great worship teams and uh, you know, it was one of the best places you could be in Sydney. But it didn't go beyond the 200. In fact, it started to get smaller and smaller. And he said to me one day, I don't know what's going wrong here, Ross. I mean, you know, I've come from a large church. I've done my apprenticeship there. I'm doing all the right things. He said, why is this church not growing? And I said, do you really want to know? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, mate, you're a great platform speaker. You're going to be a great pastor of a large church. But this church has been through hell. Mate, they want someone who washes feet. They don't know if you care. They know you're here to perform, but they don't know if you care. Are you with me? They have to know you care. They have to know you care. You have to be a servant. Not elitist, not of right, not lording over, someone who washes feet. I was glad to see after the massacre of my swans yesterday, and I was out there, 
Um, so I'm feeling a bit unhappy, you can understand that. Uh, I went home and thought I'm in for a double hit here and the Waratahs are going to get king hit. But the Waratahs actually won, if you know anything about rugby. And this is the end of the rugby season. You might have read this new book out on leadership called Legacy. And the greatest rugby team for decades have been the All Blacks. What the... <laughs> Don't you come near me after this. What do the All Blacks do... What do the All Black team do after the game? In the book Legacy, it sets out why they're in the sheds and sung the song and kids have gone to bed dreaming about putting on the black. And as in the pubs, they're all celebrating their wonderful team. What are the All Blacks doing? The leading players are getting the brooms and sweeping out the dressing sheds. They're putting the chairs back. No one does this for them. They clean up their own mess, saying to themselves, hey, you know, we're just human beings. We're just here to serve and play, put things back as we found them. We're not leaving here with swell heads. We don't want leaders with swell heads. We need leaders who know what it is to serve. And I think that's what our community want. They know you can have a church of 1,000, 1,500, 100 or whatever and they know whether the person up the front and the leadership cares and whether we care. Not only are we with that, we are to be people who are people who are leaders of people who command respect. If you read what Peter is saying there, he's saying there, look, Young people are to respect their elders. Now, that no doubt has a universal application, and many of us today would think that's great. I'll take that home and tell a few people. <laughs> Young people are to respect their elders, to submit to their elders. But he's also using elder there in the category of leader. We are all to submit to our leaders. But by the word submit, he doesn't mean bow down before. He means see the godly authority that they have been given. And uh, Paul Barnett says the best understanding of submit here is the word respect. People are to respect their elders and people in a church are to respect their leaders. We are to be people who show respect. Respect. Um, I, I kind of mentor a leader of an Asian ministry, a young adult ministry, and uh, whenever he sees me, he calls me Uncle Ross. And he says, because in my culture, you know, you are seen as a person of wisdom. So it's Uncle Joel. A sense of respect. But let me say clearly, if I see a leader where there is respect that is not being received, that may be a difficulty with the congregation. They need to hear that. They do submit. This guy is not a punching bag. This person is someone that we see as having godly authority. But respect is normally earned. And so I've also got to say, if the respect is not there, is this because the person's not a servant, not a carer, is lording over people? Do you make sense? It comes both ways. We want to see leaders that we know people in our community respect, 
because we see them having godly authority that is exercised properly. We want to show that towards the elderly in our congregation, those who are wise. We want to show that to our leadership, but we want our leadership to be people that demand that respect. Amen? Look for people you can respect. Peter says leadership applies, and this applies to all of us, he says, all of us are to clothe ourselves with humility. Humility. When you're looking at leadership and Christian living, it's not about a power game, it's not how much force I can have, it's not about my pride, as he quotes from the Proverbs, it's about whether I'm someone who exercises humility in my daily life. Now, as one person who's involved in my life as a kind of a counselling guide says, but Ross, humility doesn't equal appeasement. Humility doesn't mean being a doormat but it does mean being someone who is humble. And that's really difficult as a leader. Someone who you believe God has uh, bestowed this authority on and this leadership on and in a difficult situation, it's so easy to play the power game and call the numbers in and make sure you got the vote and make sure things are achieved the way you wish them to be achieved. And some of that process done well might not be inappropriate. But basically the kingdom of God is won by humility and not won by power. We need leaders that people see are humble and decent and know what it is to live such a life that people see they have the hand of God upon them. They're people that they respect, people that are drawn to and understand that when we follow this person, we see someone who does not seek to rule by power, but seeks to rule through the movement of the Spirit of God in humble service. They know what it is to wash feet. Joel, that's a big challenge, but it's a challenge to us all. Leadership also involves reliance on God. Reliance on God. Don't be anxious, says Peter. Don't be anxious. Well, that's an easy thing to say, isn't it? I'm sure many of us came today here anxious about health and life and mortgages and job and future. And here's Peter just saying, don't be anxious. Well, Paul says the same thing. James says the same thing. Jesus says the same thing. Don't be anxious. And we need in our own lives and we need in our leaders people who know what it is. Yes, we'll be vulnerable. Yes, we'll be anxious at times. But people who know what it is to keep that within measure. People who know what it is to see here that we trust in God and God overcomes all of our anxiety no matter what faces us. And in him, we will rest our anxiety. We need leadership that doesn't panic. Leadership that doesn't throw their hands up in the air. Oh, they might for the first five minutes. But then comes in that position of peace and trust of God. One of the best illustrations of this is one of my favourite passages in 2 Kings 6. In 2 Kings 6 you see Elisha, the prophet, and the king of Syria is trying to capture the Elisha, the prophet, and he's got all of his forces surrounding Elisha where he's camped at Dothan. And so you can imagine, here's one man surrounded by all the forces of Syria. Elisha's kind of asleep in the tent, I'm paraphrasing. His servant comes out to get breakfast. He comes out and all he can see is they're now surrounded by all the enemy forces. 
And the guy's totally panicked. He's anxious. He doesn't know what to do. And the servant comes out and he says, my gosh, we're gone. What do we do? It's all over. And Elisha just says to him, those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Don't panic, mate. God's in control. Romans 8, 28, I, all things work for good for those who trust him. As we've prayed, even death only knows resurrection. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. And we need leadership that shows in our community, in our society, what that means. I mean, how were these early Christians going to live with the martyrdom and the difficulties and the situations they faced unless they understood that trust in God, reliance upon God in what they saw in Peter, what they saw in their leaders, was a trust that allowed them to hang, uh, handle any adversity and hang on to their faith and knowing that in our God there is only resurrection. Only resurrection. That's what people need to see. In all of today's anxieties, there is only hope. Also, we're called upon here to be people who are sober and alert. Sober and alert. Or self-controlled and watchful. Self-controlled and watchful. And we certainly need that today. And it's the same thing that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. We need leaders, <coughs> we need a church and community that is self-controlled and alert. Alert about what? About what's happening in our society, what's happening in our community. About what the trends are, what the concerns are. You know, how do we minister and, and, and act in that kind of situation? That's one of the reasons that we wrote uh, Taboo or To Do. We thought the church was just not alert. You know, if, if, you're, if you're playing soccer today at any particular representative level or, or, or standard school level, you will be doing yoga. Now, I'm not here bagging out yoga. I'm just saying yoga's going to happen. If you go to a marketing seminar, you will be into mindfulness. Schools have got programs based on mindfulness. There are things interacting in our community that not necessarily do we need to bag, we need to know what they are. We need to assess them. We need to know whether they can operate within Christian boundaries. If so, what does that look like? We need to be able to be people that address the issues that are faced today. So I'm talking to some, uh, some of our developers, the team called Toga, and they're saying to me, oh, we've got a new book out, what's it called? And I told them, well, what issues are you addressing? These guys don't go to church. I said, oh, we're addressing yoga. Oh, we all do yoga. And then one or two said, oh, we do it for spiritual reasons. The others are saying, no, we just simply do it for exercise. And a lot of them do yoga, but none of them come to church. So how do I address that? What's the church to do about that? And one of my fears is that often as churches we talk about everything and anything apart from what the spiritual endeavours and search and meaning is out there. But we're alert and self-controlled. We don't panic, we look, we assess, we don't demonise. We need people today who understand our community and world and are sober and alert. Also, we need people, says Peter, with eyes, eyes open to the spiritual battles that are around about us. No doubt the, the Roman kind of lion emphasis here is that uh, the Roman mass 
uh, the, the, the Roman leadership was seen like a roaring lion. And what Peter is saying is that that roaring lion is not just limited to the Roman Empire. That roaring lion represents the devil and the spiritual battles that you and I are in. We are people who just do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are people who are involved in a spiritual battle. I think one of the dangers we have in the West, it's called the excluded middle. We have God up here, we have ourselves down here, and we have nothing in between. It's called by missiologists the excluded middle. But there's God up here, us down there, and in between is a whole realm of the angelic and the spiritual and that particular world. Now, the interesting thing is out there, they're discovering that world again. They're fascinated by angels. They're fascinated by that particular world. But we have so confident with our relationship like God and us and nothing in between. Well, that's not the biblical world. That's not the world of Asia or Africa or, or elsewhere. They understand the world of the spiritual realm. And so many people exploring spirituality today understand that world as well. But not only are we to appreciate that world and understand the impact of that world, we are to be people that address that world and speak into that world. And we are to be people that, as we've already seen in 1 Peter 3.15, can give an answer, can stand up and say why we believe, even in the midst of a spiritual battle, but do so with gentleness and respect. If you go um, back to 2 Kings 6 when you get home, you'll see that what happens with Elisha, he not only reminds him that those who are with us are more than those who are against us, he prays for the servant, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And when the servant's eyes are open, what does he see? that around all these forces, the king of Syria, are the heavenly forces of God. That they're surrounded by the heavenly forces of God. They're not alone. God is with them, with his angels, and all of his heavenly forces surround them. We need leaders today, Joel, with eyes open. Eyes open. That know that God is with us. God is with us with his immense angelic presence and the power of his spirit, and even though there might seem to be at hostility at times against us and the church, those who are with us are more than those who are against us, that in the risen Christ we are surrounded by all, all that heaven offers. And therefore, therefore, the gates of hell cannot prevail. Amen? Amen. We need leaders who know that but know it well. Don't take us down some mumbo-jumbo Christianity. But do know we live in a world of spiritual realms and spiritual engagement. And finally, we need leaders of grace. Do we not? Leaders of grace. And uh, Peter says here, rely on grace. Grace to overcome. Grace to Grace to be the leader God's called you to be. Grace to be the people God's called you to be. We do not do this in our own strength. The last thing we need are leaders who think, look at me, look at what I've done, look what I've achieved, let's put our name to another building. I don't like names on buildings, by the way. I don't like names on buildings. Not because I don't want to have respect to the past, but it's not about us. It's about God, it's about Jesus. In a decade, they won't even know who we are. But by God's grace, the ministry will live on. Does that make sense? 
It's about grace. You don't want people in leadership who, who are making sure that their heritage lives on. And that doesn't mean we don't respect that heritage. We want people in leadership who are committed to Jesus' heritage living on. A ministry of grace. And notice, I love this. Well, I don't love it, but I'd take note of it. That Peter says you might have to keep on suffering for a while. You might have to commit having grace for a little bit longer. Grace might not just be for the short term. You might be reliant on God more than you want to. Uh, I have a saying that's come uh, true to me in recent years, and I think it's true to many. And uh, I'm not quite sure how theologically correct it is, but you think of this. The saying goes like this. God may be slow, but he's never late. Isn't that what he's saying here? God may be slow, but he's never late. Peter, you might just have to suffer a little bit more than you actually think. You might not get to where you think you're going to get exactly when you think you're going to get there. But I'm going to get you where you need to get to. And you just rely on my grace for that to happen. So what does God want of us as leaders? He wants a servanthood heart. He wants people that people can respect. He wants people of humility. He wants people that rely on him. He wants people that are alert to what's happening in our world and our community. He wants people with eyes open to the spiritual reality of what it means to minister today. And he wants people who rely on grace. That's the apostolic list that's given. And isn't it a list for all of us? This is a book that I've always loved and always find myself going back to, and it's a kind of a, a list of little stories. It's called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And whenever I think about God's list of what he, respects, what he expects of us, I'm always reminded, you know, it's not like it's overly profound. It's not like it's overly complicated. And what All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, what that set out is the basic truths of life we learnt in kindergarten, the basic truths of life we learnt in Sunday school. He says, like, share everything, hold hands when you cross the road, look before you cross the road, clean up your own mess, flush, whatever it is. Basic <laughs> principles we learnt in kindergarten are the basic principles of life, are they not? Same for leadership. If you don't get the basics right, then I'm not sure how God uses you. We need leaders, Joel, who get the basics right. Who get the, not perfectly, but that's the path they're on. They get the basics right. And what's more, when leaders model that life, the rest of us say, yeah, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you've, in your word, pulled together what it means to be a leader, what it means to serve you in ways that are pleasing to you, ways that are pleasing to your gospel. Father, I pray for every leader in this church, those who lead the church in all variety of capacities. May they know those seven characteristics in their life and in their spirit through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. And Father, I also pray that for all of us, may they be characteristics that the risen Christ seeks to live out in our lives, in our church and in our community. 
So as we live and worship and serve in this region, the people will know that we are the light, we are the salt. And as they're desperately searching but have concerns with respect to so many situations, including the church, they will see the goodness of the Lord Jesus through who we are and what we proclaim. And we ask that in his name. Amen.